Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder joining us. You know, it's a founder that has done it multiple times. You know, a founder that has been able to accomplish, you know, building what ended up becoming a unicorn in Canada. I mean, think about that, you know, really incredible. And he's doing really tremendous stuff now, you know, with two of his uh, most recent companies. So we're going to be thinking about, you know, and talking about narratives, you know, how to approach narratives with different VCs how he was able to really grow and build, you know, that kind of a company and also how he was able to exit, you know, partially, you know, that chapter to be a secondary as well as to, you know, the way to think about governance, how to think about board seats, board members, so that you're not making, you know, the typical mistakes that you would see because then, you know, once you've complicated things, then it's hard to really turn it around. And then as well, the balance between being a cash flow positive company and dealing with a VC growth mindset, which is something that is very much top of mind today with the macro environment, with that profit versus growth that we're dealing with. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rob Imbo. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Alejandro. Glad to be here. So originally born in Montreal. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> Cold. Um, maybe that's just top of <laughs> maybe that's just top of mind. Um, yeah, no. Uh, born and somewhat raised in Montreal, I did spend a few years in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, which is a blue collar steel type uh, type area. Um, yeah, I lived there. High school back in Montreal. Uh, did Cégep, which is our equivalent to college, and uh, did a year of university. Um, that didn't work out. Um, just sort of floated around trying to figure things out. Um, was more of a computer engineer, just tinkering and hacking my way through it. And 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 Rob, before before you continue here, I just want to double click on that because people are probably wondering when listening here, what happened in college? Why why didn't it work out, especially after the first year? <laughs> I think I was just too young. I really didn't appreciate um, academia, and and sitting still is definitely not my strong point, um, as we'll get into. <laughs> uh, so, yes. So, so, okay. I mean, and, and obviously, you know, like for, for the creators and for, for founders, you know, it's a, it's a repeated pattern, by the way. Now, in your case, it sounds like, you know, you came across a technical college, you know, where you uh, ended up into the whole engineering, you know, thing. And that seemed to be clicking for you. Yeah, I just, I, I really fell in love with coding. Um, right. I just, it just, it just made sense to me. So I was able to kind of, kind of play. Um, and yeah, I, I had the technical college that worked out quite well. I was able to focus, um, and yeah, hired right out of, uh, college, uh, to teach and then become, a uh, an engineer at a small firm here in Ottawa. So where, where do you think that problem solving mentality came from? Because obviously you got into the whole engineering and coding and putting pieces together. So where do you think that that came from? Um, there's a lot, probably a lot of personal stuff that <laughs> we can psychoanalyze that's that section. But I think um, really, I, I always had a love affair with math. I was on the math team. I really geeked out in there. And I, I loved I loved um, equations. And I loved like the, the ability to make um, complex uh, formulas be a bit more 
um, elegant and simple. Now, for you, the um, as they say, entrepreneurs are either born or they're made. But it sounds like uh, you had it in the family too. Uh, I did. Yeah, my grandfather um, had one of the original six Canadian tires. Uh, that's that's a big. Um, hardware store uh, chain uh, in Canada. And then uh, he built out his own chain of hardware stores. And he was very, you know, wealthy barber type person, save around 10% of your gross every single paycheck. Um, don't borrow uh, cash flow positive, create a lifestyle business. Um, very, very much uh, a mentor for sure. So then I guess, hey, at what point did you know, or did you say to yourself, maybe one day I'll start something on my own? I. I think I always knew, maybe not consciously, but I always knew um, I, I, I wanted to do something to make a difference, to make an impact. Um, I didn't know what, but with, with my grandfather, he just said, you know, well, like, A, you create your own luck. He really instilled that early in my teens is like, forget the luck. It's like, you work your ass off, luck will find you, I promise. Um, so I, I took that to heart. And no matter what I work, even if my teenage years, I'm working at Foot Locker, if I'm working at a restaurant, like I, I just, I did the work um, and, and I saw the success. And I was, at one point, I loved working at Foot Locker. I thought that was going to be my life. Um, but then you taste a little bit of success and I want to go up the ranks. And then you go up the ranks. You're like, why, why am I making these guys so much money? Uh, I, I can make my own difference. And and obviously, you know, as uh, as your grandfather was saying, you know, luck will follow. As they say, luck ultimately is preparation meets opportunity. Now, in your case, yeah. really creating that luck for you was when you started to build uh, software. And, uh, you know, eventually, you know, you started uh, connecting with some friends and one thing led to the next and you ended up, you know, here with your first company. So how did that happen? <laughs> So I used to box. I boxed for 14 years. Um, I was part owner in a boxing club. One of the guys I boxed with, uh, which far, far better than me, I wasn't very good. Um, but uh, we became, you know, fast friends. And he was working for a telecom company. And he said, you know what, like, I have this project manager, I have this small project, can you help me build a little piece of software? And it was like a call tracking software or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so I, I was working for that, that smaller company went to my boss and he's like, no, we're not going to do any free work, but you can do it on your own. Like, okay. So I did it and that worked out and, and the, his bosses liked it and they asked for more. Um, and so I went back and at the same time, um, that company I was working for wasn't doing very well. And so I decided um, that I could run it better. Um, I don't, I had no idea why, <laughs> um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I offered to buy him out. Um, so went into uh, credit card debt, took some loans um, and took a chance and hired, you know, bought up the assets and the staff and started building the company from scratch there. So you guys were doing their uh, B2B software for telecom companies, you know, yeah. amongst the other stuff. But mm. this was ultimately what uh, ended up being the segue to one of your biggest success, if not the biggest success to date. And yeah. that ended up being asset compliance. Now. In this case, you know, like with the company, you know, it, it, it ended up originating because you had a friend that had an idea around supply chain software. So walk yeah. us through, you know, what were those sequence of events that allow you to bring asset to life? Um, it's, I guess, friends of friends. The network knew that, you know, I was experiencing uh, some, you know, some success and, and I was good at what I did. Um, and he pitched the idea. It's like, like this, this industry is ripe for 
for software it's, it, and for systems. Um, and when he pitched it and he showed me his ideas, like I thought that was, I thought it was brilliant. Um, he showed me the challenges and I, I, I said, okay, well, I'll build it. Um, and you can become sales for the organization. Um, he was still at another company. Um, I, I built the first version in 12 days in my basement. I wasn't really coding as much then, but because I, I, so I really relished it. I really loved how I had fun building it with him. Um, and, uh, after two weeks, he sold the first version to an enterprise company, um, and uh, that which is unheard of. And so I'm just scrambling uh, with myself and my my very small team, trying to keep up with these demands of this enterprise customer. Um, and he continued to sell it, and all of the the requirements from that first company tra- company really translated into um, a roadmap essentially for what we were to build. Um, and earlier on, um, I, I really, I was really, I had the idea of um, AI being a part of it. Um, and we re- really tinkered with how we can automate um, supply chain uh, management and transparency using um, some of the early tools in AI. So you but, you ended up incubating this as part of the 10-count, you know, company that you had initially purchased and that you were building. So yeah. How did that uh, thought process work out of, hey, you know, let's keep building this within the umbrella of 10 count, or maybe let's do a rollout and let's have asset compliance become a company of its own? Right. It, it really was about focus, um, which is something incredibly important. Um, it was clear that this was going to outgrow 10 count. Uh, 10 count was doing uh, two other arms with with backups, with, with our own software and 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 the telecom stuff. Um, and we wanted to build something uh, individual, so that broke up. There was three founders, um, um, and that that broke that out in in 2010. It, yeah, it was really about creating an organization around the one product because focus is so incredibly important. So then, what ended up being the business model of asset compliance for the people that are listening to get it? How are you guys making money? Um, so we would um, go to uh, a large manufacturer, good, hard good manufacturer. So think, you know, GE or, or Rolls Royce or, or CA, um, and they have to attest and prove all of the, the chemicals and goods and, and anything that would be harmful to the environment that it will end up in a landfill twenty years from now. Um, really have to um, so. How we did it is we charged uh, an upfront consulting fee um, and implementation um, fee, like a big analysis section, and then it was it was a SaaS company really uh, above and beyond that. So they every time and what the beauty of it was these regulations they were always looking for substances of high concern, and these substances constantly change. So in in most of them are in the EU, but if you think California, California has Prop sixty five, which started out with you know, four or 500 substances. And like every quarter they would release new. So we would have new work every quarter where we have to go, you know, re, um, re-engage with the supply chain to see, you know, okay, how, how do these substances exist in your parts and, and, and your assemblies? Um, so it, it really was a SaaS company or so, really is a SaaS company. So, so, so in this case, you know, for you guys, you know, how also was the, um, you know, the idea of eventually raising money, because I mean, the first thing I would say 18, 18 months there, you know, you, you guys were like doing this, like for the most part, like bootstrap, no, like without really like VCs, uh, pumping money into this. So, so how did you go through those 18 months to really build such a, 
an incredibly demanding company like this, you know, because obviously you need capital to build this. And then at what point were you guys, you know, thinking like, hey, maybe it makes sense to uh, open up, you know, here the doors to external money to VCs? Um, a few things happened. So yeah, early stage was very much uh, bootstrap. My um, my sales guy, my sales partner, the the initial founder, really, um, he was living off of lines of credit. <laughs> um, you know, when he quit his job to do this full time, um, we we my other uh, partner and I like we we had ten pounds to pay our, our salaries earlier on, um, but it was becoming clear that it, it was going to need a lot more heads and. Um, so yeah, we, we, we went as far as we could every time we got a new client, we hired a couple of new staff and we did it, you know, slow growth style there. And we were at about 25 people. So we, we managed to get quite far, but, um, we through, um, my, my third founder, um, and boxing again, um, he met, uh, one of the most, one of the most successful venture capitalists in Canadian history. Um, and he was fighting on this uh, charity boxing event. Um, and uh, he was just leaving another company called Pythian, Pythian um, that he took from, I think, uh, like 40 million to 400 million. And he was leaving that. Um, and he, he was pretty much looking for a place to work. So he came to work out of our offices um, and for three months just sat meetings and took notes. And he eventually became our CEO. Um, and with his um, extensive experience as a VC, he knew the game, right? So he was definitely our, our, our biggest mentor in the, the raising capital game, um, uh, game. And so he initiated that series a, um, and, and he, yeah, he came on very, you know, <laughs> modestly came on and then just sort of led the way with that series a and really taught us about timing, um, about, uh, really tailoring your pitches and pitch decks to the types of VCs and, and, and what the narratives are for their specific funds because they have their own investment thesis. Um, I think that, and timing really, I mean, he ended up, um, he, well, he definitely led the way and we ended up with five term sheets in two weeks time. So we were able to pick and choose the best part. Um, and, you know, those, those pitches, especially at the third and second stage of engagement, it's really a two-way straight right? You don't want to take just anybody's money. You really want the VCs to bring value. Um, and uh, yeah, we landed on Volition and they were, they, were, they were great. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And in total for the uh, company, how, how much has the company raised to date? Uh, 660 million US. And then when you were talking about the narrative and tweaking the narrative, depending on who you're speaking with, how do you go about that so that you don't like overcomplicate yourself and also so that you make it you know, effective as a process? Yeah, you, you always have your basic tenants. You have your origin story. Um, the numbers are the numbers. Um, in, in the case, so fast forward to where I am now, um, really like with climate tech, you need sustainability numbers. You want your impact and they ask a lot of impact. Um, I think in, in preparation, I think things like PitchBook, I mean, there's a reason why it's so expensive because <laughs> you can go into PitchBook, uh, PitchBook and look at a file of a VC and you can see their win loss. You can see their allocation by industry. You can see their investment thesis. You see the, the the people, how many board seats they want, um, and you can you can lead, you can tailor those pitches, right? You can go into a VC and be like, listen, like it, your your last two wins were in in climate tech, uh, but your allocation is only five percent. Maybe we should double that and, and invest in us. And here's where we match, and we really demonstrate that we understand the power law. Um, I, I, and honestly, that's another way. Um, even though university didn't work out for me, I'm a big lifelong learner. I, I, I read everything I get a hold of, uh, or watch or consume. Um, by the way, I, I share all of that on my socials. I have like, this is what I consumed this week. Um, and, and I follow, you know, the Bill Gurley's of the world and the, like the all in podcast I, I quite enjoy. Um, and I, I temper that with, with, with other finance. Um, so I think going in with a, with a, a knowledge of really understanding the power law game from this side, you can really appreciate the uh, the other side. Um, and I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of Batna, right? Like, like if you read Getting to Yes, I think your listeners would probably know. Um, I I I'm not like a strong arm guy. I go in with the best um, best alternatives. I, I want to understand. I want win- wins on both sides. Um, and being an asshole nowadays, you know, just doesn't work. And, and yeah, with, with, with the macro environment right now, uh, we, we don't have those, uh, chances anyway, but as long as you have like your, 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 your numbers are solid, then yeah, you're good. So then eventually, you know, it, uh, it comes to terms, you know, there's a private equity firm that comes in and that yeah. opens up the opportunity for, uh, you know, doing a secondary, you know, where ultimately existing shareholders are able to sh- to sell their shares. And this got you into retirement. So how walk us through what you were thinking, you know, obviously after having spent, you know, quite a bit of time, I mean, you were in it, you know, for close to 10 years. But why did you say to yourself, maybe it's time for me to take this now, do a secondary transaction and go into retirement at the age of 45? Um, well, 10 count, I mean, so Ascent was only 10 years, but I was an entrepreneur since 2003. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, a lot of factors and this is, 
very much personal more than anything. Um, I took a little secondary in, in 2017. Um, um, and I sold everything and I, I wanted to leave, but I, my, my biggest thing was my daughter, my first daughter was born and I wanted to see her grow up. I, I just didn't like startup life is what it is. There is no balance if, if you want to be great. Um, and that's okay. I, I think, right. It's peaks and valleys. Um, but, but that there's very little balance if you really want to pursue greatness. Um, that's, that's a fun negotiation right now with two daughters. Um, but uh, you yeah, know, I, I I took it um, because it was yeah it was 15 years of of sludgery. Um, it wasn't that much. It wasn't something that could keep me going uh, forever. Um, I just had enough to to not be in debt and, and live comfortably with my wife. And we went to Southeast Asia for 10 months just with our with our 18 month old and just traveled. Um, we're pretty much homeless. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So so you did the retirement thing for about I mean close to five years. I mean that's a that's incredible. I mean, you were obviously able to raise your daughter and be there, you know, and, and experience those first years, which is incredible. Now, once an entrepreneur, as they say, always an entrepreneur. So at what point, you know, you, you didn't go at it just like, again, you went at it like double, like double the trouble, you know, with, uh, with two companies, with Farm Anywhere and then also Hardy Food. So, so walk us through how the whole incubation, you know, of, of, of these ideas came about and and why did you felt at that point, you know, in 2022, that it was the right time to get back into it again? Um, I mean, if you use the word retirement around my wife, she'd probably laugh. Um, as we traveled, I, I wrote two books. <laughs> and so I, I was I was given, you know, two and a half hours every day to write every single day wherever we were. Um, and. I I came in and I was also a little bit of an uh, angel investor because I love meeting uh, founders and entrepreneurs. Like they, you know, I think they're going to change the world and they they continue to do so. Um, I don't know if you just saw that speech by Mile uh, in the World Economic Forum yesterday. Entrepreneurs are heroes. It's incredibly inspiring. I, I encourage all uh, entrepreneurs to 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 go listen to it. Um, but uh, I was doing some angeling. I loved the entrepreneurs and then. I, I met one through a friend and uh, I just, I loved his energy. He was living downtown Toronto in a really high paying job with his wife and they sold everything and they wanted to start their own functional mushrooms company. It was just making tinctures and they moved to like Northern Quebec in the middle of winter to stay in a motel to learn how wild harvesting works. And I just love operators. I love true operators that just give it. And, um, and he was doing a raise for, I think, 750000 or something around that. Um, and I had breakfast with him. And, uh, just, and he's, he just sort of expressed his worries. Like, I'm taking other people's money. So I'm taking this seriously. And it's giving me anxiety. I'm like, and I just said, okay, well, what if that was $10 million? Actually, what if it was $50 million? What would you do if you raised $50 million right and his eyes just lit up it's as if he saw the matrix and, and he just, he had an extreme calm. He's like, yeah, I guess it's the same amount of anxiety, no matter how much you're raising, right? It's, it's, it's going to be a matter of impact and, and pricing and all that. But I mean, really, what are you going to do with that? And he, he thought very seriously about it. So I, I, I came in as a, as an investor um, and we looked into something else, but then we, we founded um, uh, this vertical farming co uh, company based on mushrooms, where we grow and sell mushrooms at its core. 
Um, but we really delve deeply into into the technology. And like, I came on as a, a volunteer, so I pretty much just paid for the privilege, privilege to work with him. Um, and uh, and then it was about a year into it, uh, I was like, you know what? I think this vertical farming has something really special, and we can attack the food system um, in a special way, and we are doing it. Um, and so, yeah, our first. So yeah, this is our second year. We just seven extra revenue, um, and we're looking for global growth and global growth. We did a seed round uh, with Congruent Ventures, one of the biggest climate tech uh, uh, venture firms out of out of, out of SF, uh, who have been incredible. And we're doing our series A, series A now, and very much in like like I, like we discussed earlier, the VC mindset, right? The growth mindset, which is a funny thing in, in itself. And how did you combine that with the Hardy Foods as well? So that is Hardy Foods. And so our our model was to um, grow mushrooms in these shipping container farms. And so we outsourced um, growing, uh, the, the building, the manufacturing of these farms. And this company that built them for us was absolute shit um, and just did not build what they promised and overcharged and didn't work. And uh, so I... I, I <laughs> partnered with an engineer uh, savant and said, we'll just build them ourselves. And then I just personally invested in, in Farm Anywhere um, in order to service Hardy, essentially. But Farm Anywhere became its own thing as well. Um, so that's like an opportunity for revenue. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's why the two companies, they're, they're very much in, in, interconnected. So then let's talk about the future. Because obviously there's like a lot uh, going on now, especially around this space. So let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Rob, and you wake up in a world where the vision of this whole thing is fully realized. What does that world look like? Um, so we have farms across the globe. Um, we have thousands of farms. Each farm can you know, pr produce between a quarter and a half million dollars each in revenue. Um, we've added new crops, we've changed the food systems, we've attracted the next generation of farmers, something both the U.S. and Canada sorely need because there's no succession plan. Um, I think we've really influenced the, uh, the food system in a hugely possible way. And, we've, and we do so, we grow our food sustainably as well. I think we, we really share what we've learned um, and uh, other people could do it too. So I, I, I mean, it's food, right? <laughs> I mean, call, competitors are competitors, but we're all we're on the same game. You know, we're growing food, so uh, I think I think of them as colleagues more than anything. And how have you been thinking too about um, you know now? Let's say getting into that future. You know, thinking about governance. You know, on board seats and and board members. How do you think that going through all these different experiences with different companies has shaped your your mindset around that? Yeah, I, really learning the board game over the past decade. Um, early on, I really didn't understand. I was on a board of uh, of a big nonprofit, didn't really get it. Uh, you know, they brought me on to bring entrepreneurial eyes on on an old system, um, but I couldn't really make an impact. Um, but uh, it, it, with respect to these companies, so important to get it right at the beginning. Um, and it may be controversial, but there is um, impermanent board seats. It could be a term, you know, two-year term, including the founders, right? If you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. Um, and really outlining um, the game 
if some board members are acting in their own interests, you know, versus the fiduciary duty of the company, um, I think that could be a challenge. And and people are people, um, right? I, I think, um, and really getting board members that understand the game in which you're about to embark on. Like if we are in a high growth, we're not going to be cash flow positive, right? We're going to spend as if no money, uh, as if more money's coming. Um, and that's okay. That's, that's high growth doesn't mean profit. Um, and that also means dilution, right? So like you're, if you're, you're a board member, generally, you're probably an investor or founder, you're going to get diluted. That's, and I think that's okay. If you're, if you're 20 xing your value, but you're taking a 20% dilution hit, you're still pre- pretty much cash happy, right? So like really understanding those numbers um, and, like, and you're building value, um, I, I, think, I think that's the goal. And getting that ironed out early is such a big, a big deal. So as we're thinking about lessons here, learn, you know, I want to put you into a time machine. And everyone, I want to bring you back in time, Rob. And Man, I'm going back and forth. Uh, let, let's, say, let's say I'm taking you back. I'm taking you back. You know, I'm taking you back, you know, maybe to, um, I don't know, let's say like to the early 2000s, no, let's say, or maybe like to that, yeah, 2003, you know, right before you were about to pull your credit card and get into massive debt, you know, to buy, you know, what ended up becoming 10 count, your first baby. But let's say you were able to stop yourself on the tracks right there. And let's say you're able to give that younger Rob one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Um, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> and I know this is something you ask, but um, you know, I, I, I would say stop worrying. Um, really just enjoy those moments. Like earlier on, like we, one of the first the first big project we got, there was three of us, and um, you may not remember, but in 2003, there was a um, big major blackout across the eastern seaboard, and I in New York City. It was crazy, um, and the company we were working for, we had like four months to, to like finish this project. It was based on their backup software, and that event um, had them come back. So, can you build a bare bones version in six days? <laughs> and so the three of us, we got a bunch of cots and we coded for six days. And the morning we coded, the afternoon we troubleshoot, um, we deploy, troubleshoot, and then we code. And then, and we just did that like solid. We didn't sleep. Um, and it was so stressful, but like it's so fun in hindsight. Like just to enjoy those moments. Like now I look back on it, just like, oh my God, that was amazing. I love that. Um, and maybe a little bit of that is what's translated here, right? We're just in a fun little startup office here with 35 people. It's, you know, it's it's somewhat, it's pretty much tiny right now. Like, and and knowing everybody and like this stage, you know, it's okay to call the company family. I don't buy into all this nonsense on social media. It's like, don't call your staff your family. It's like, no, I mean, my, my, the early stage 10 counters were my family. The early stage Accenture's probably the first 50 of them were my family. And, and these guys are, I know it turns into something else over time, but like, you know, I think it turns into a professional sports team, but, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I would really say like, enjoy those, savor those moments. Um, and uh, yeah. I love it. So Rob, for the people that are listening, 
that would love to reach out and say hi? What is the best way for them to do so? Um, I'm most active on LinkedIn um, and and X, um, but uh, yeah, I post everything on, on LinkedIn. I'm I'm quite thoughtful of, of what I put up, and every week I post what yeah, like what I consume. Um, my entire reading list I keep on Goodreads uh, just to share as much as I possibly can. Um, um, and then, yeah, I have a book called Before I Leave You. It's, it's not really about startups uh, or anything. It's more about a past trauma, but uh, it's in the mental health space. I'm very much uh, uh, an advocate in the me- mental health space, especially for founders. <laughs> what's, the, what's the name of the book? Uh, it's called Before I Leave You. Before I Leave You. And where can people uh, find the book? Um, Amazon, all the big retailers. Um, and I've, I've never not responded uh, to someone reaching out. Um, I think, yeah, so that, that book just hit 10,000. Um, so I'm actually ext- extremely proud and I donate 100% of proceeds from that book, uh, there to mental health care. So, well, obviously, you know, uh, entrepreneurship involves a uh, depression, unfortunately. And, yes. uh, you know, I think that mental health is a really big uh, thing, you know, in the venture world that I don't think that, I think that people are more conscious around it, you know, uh, but, um, definitely very, very, uh, relevant topic. So, Definitely encourage everyone to take a look at it. So, Rob, I just want to thank you, you know, really for taking the time. And it has been a tremendous honor to have you on the show today. So thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you. And thank you for your podcasts. It's uh, inspiring. Love it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.